We continue our Advent and Christmas series this morning, looking through the different hymns and songs, carols of the Christmas and Advent season. And this morning we come to O Little Town of Bethlehem, which brings us to Luke chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration and was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to their hometowns to be registered. Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David called Bethlehem, because he was descended from the house and family of David. He went to be registered with Mary, to whom he was engaged and who was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the end. The word of the Lord. Bethlehem is a town that a lot of us hear about in this time of the year, and there's kind of a lot of focus around it in some of the imagery of Christmas, and uh, we, we tend to think a little bit about the town being this quaint space. And, uh, and yet, at the same time, there's some real historical stuff about the town of Bethlehem that's significant. And when an Episcopal bishop named Philip Brooks in 1865 went to visit this little town of Bethlehem in the Holy Lands while he was there doing a tour of the Holy Lands, he was so struck by the place of Christ's birth that he penned the words to the hymn that we're focusing on today. He penned, O Little Town of Bethlehem. Now, he was a minister at the time in a church in Philadelphia. He later would become a bishop and finish his time in Boston, Massachusetts. But he was in this church in Philadelphia, and he came back from the Holy Land excited about this poem that he had written. And he went to his organist, whose name was Louis Redner, and he said, can you put this to music? Now, here's Redner's words about this experience. Redner said, as Christmas of 1868 approached, Mr. Brooks told me that he had written a simple little carol for the Christmas Sunday school service, and he asked me to write the tune to it. The simple music was written in great haste and under great pressure. We were to practice it on the following Sunday. Mr. Brooks came to me on Friday and said, Redner, have you ground out that music yet to O Little Town of Bethlehem? Brenda, I would never do this to you. <laughs> I replied, no, but that he should have it by Sunday. On the Saturday night previous, my brain was all confused about the tune. I thought more about my Sunday school lesson than I did about the music, but I was roused from sleep late in the night hearing an angel's strain whispering in my ear and seizing a piece of music paper. I jotted down the treble of the tune as we now have it. And on Sunday morning before going to church, I filled in the harmony. Neither Mr. Brooks nor I ever thought the carol or the music to it would be live beyond that Christmas of 1868. So three years after he originally went to Bethlehem and he had penned this poem, he presses his music director to write some music to it, and then it becomes a hymn that we sing almost every single Christmas, right? What an incredible story that they didn't even think that anybody else would use it. It wasn't until like a year later, another bishop in the area had heard about this song and had, had heard it somewhere and really enjoyed it. 
and wanted to include it into a kind of a collection of carols for the Episcopal, for the Episcopal Church here in the United States. And that's how it really began to spread was through the Episcopal Church and through this, this carol book. And it became a big thing. What a wonderful idea about this hymn that talks about this little place in Israel being such kind of an insignificant, hastily thrown together piece of music and then becoming so significant. It kind of parallels the very story of Israel itself. This is Israel today. I took this picture standing on the street in January when I went to Israel, and you could see that it is a very modern town. This was just kind of the edge of town. There's, it's a pretty big town now, and if you look off kind of to the left, of behind that building there. There's a valley that goes off, so it's a very hilly town, and there's all kinds of buildings all over the place, all kinds of modern business. In fact, there's a Starbucks there, <laughs> but it's not owned by Starbucks. Some local person ripped off everything about Starbucks and opened a coffee shop and called it Starbucks. And apparently Starbucks didn't have the copyright in Israel, so, so they, there they are. But it's an incredible little town. We got to tour through it, and it is huge. Today, the town is about 75,000 people strong. So it's much, much bigger than in the day of Jesus. Let's look a little bit at the history of why Bethlehem was important to Israel. Well, if we go all the way back to Genesis, the, one of the first times we ever hear about Bethlehem was when Rachel dies. Now, who's Rachel? Do you guys remember who Rachel is? That's right, Jacob's wife. Jacob's what wife? No, it's actually his second wife, but it's the one he loved, the one he worked for seven years to get, and then, then his uncle tricked him, right? And so Rachel's the, life, the, the wife of his love, and it was here in Bethlehem as they were traveling through the land of Cana, the promised land that God had given to Abraham and said that his descendants would inhabit, that Rachel dies. And so Rachel is buried in Bethlehem, making Bethlehem a place of incredible import to the history of Israel. At this point, it wasn't even an Israeli or an Israelite town, was it? It was instead a Canaanite town. And the name Bethlehem, Beit Lehem, okay, in the Hebrew means house of bread. But that's probably not what the original name meant. The original name probably referred to a Canaanite goddess of fertility, that this town was a house of hers. And then as the Hebrews adopted the name, they, they kind of transliterated it and changed it over so that it would mean house of bread. This town continues to be important because we see in the story of Ruth. How many of you guys know the story of Ruth? Good. Next year, before Advent, we're going to be actually walking through the whole story of Ruth. And the reason why Ruth is so important to the, Christ, the Christian story, to the Christ story, is because it is through the direct lineage of Ruth that David is born. And then it is in the generations of David that the Messiah is then promised to rule in the lineage of David over all of Israel, right? And so it's Ruth, who is a Moabite woman, who is a daughter-in-law of Naomi, and all of the males of the family die, and there's just these two daughters-in-laws, and, and Naomi left, and Naomi releases them to go back to their family of origin, figuring they'd be better off there than with her. And Naomi's ready to die. She just, she's unhappy with life. She's ready to give up. And she's ready to go back and just be a, a 
poor, destitute and poor old woman for the rest of her life and eventually die probably of depression and of starvation. And so she is so just end of, end of all things, she just gives up. But Ruth says, no, I'm going to stick with you, Naomi, and I'm going to keep taking care of you. And it's because of this that when they move back to the home that, that, her, that Naomi's husband was from, Bethlehem, that they meet a man who takes up the position of being the kinsman redeemer, which means that he marries Ruth to produce an heir in the lineage and line not of his family, but of the family of Naomi's husband so that their name might stay in the land. And so it's here that Ruth and Naomi go back to and they find, uh, they find refuge here and they, they find the ability to continue to live and to survive and not only that, to become the very start of the lineage of the hope of all of Israel as the messianic line. And so then we see in 1 Samuel 16 that Samuel call, is called by the Lord to go to Bethlehem. He says this, fill your horn with oil and set out. I will send you to Jesse, the son, the, or the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. Now Jesse is the grandson of Ruth. They're still in this little town of Bethlehem. People didn't move around to different towns very much back then. They grew up in their little town. They were there for a very long time. So then we see later a, a prophecy in Micah the, of the minor prophets. And Micah prophecies to Israel, but you, O Bethlehem of Ephratah, who are one of the little clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to rule in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. So this town, this little tiny town, has incredible importance to the people of Israel. It has this history of God using this little town to prep for the Messiah who will one day fulfill all of his promises for Israel. What an incredible, incredible thing to think about this little tiny town being used in such a way. Now, how tiny? How tiny is Bethlehem? We might think it's just a few thousand or whatever else, but let's look at Nehemiah. Nehemiah, after the Babylonian captivity, and he's bringing back the captives to their original land, he counts the number of people from Bethlehem and Netophah, which is the little villages that surround around Bethlehem, and the number of people he brings back out of exile for this town is 188 now, this is not uncommon for towns in those times. We visited a small, a, a almost brand new archaeological site in Nazareth of Magdala, where Mary Ma the Magdalene came from, and that you would walk around this town, and it was like, it would fit all inside of our sanctuary. And so you can only imagine that only a couple hundred people could live there in very small and tight quarters. And so it was not that big of a town. And that was kind of a small town average across the whole area of Israel that there would be all these little towns all over the place. Even if we are to fast forward into history, this is a picture from the end of the 19th century, 1898, that I found on Wikipedia. And around this time, the, the town was only about 2,000 or so people. And so even in those days, it still was a small town. So this was shortly after 
Philip Brooks went and visited Bethlehem, right? This is only like 30 years after that, that, that we'd get this picture, and there's only a couple thousand people living in Bethlehem. Now, there was a lot of people who would do pilgrimages there and things like that by that time, and so there's a lot of people who would pass through, but people who live there as residents, only a couple thousand people. Here's a picture you can see from uh, 1930s of an aerial shot of the area. You could see how hilly and how many ravines and valleys, and you can kind of see how the land has been groomed over time with those steps for agriculture. Uh, You can look and see that this is a pretty small town in a very hilly area. One might call this kind of like the Hobunkin town, right? Out on the outskirts, about 6.2 miles south of the outside of Jerusalem. So it's almost kind of a bedroom community or a a suburb of Jerusalem, if you want to look at it that way, just a day's walk away from there. This is a picture that I didn't take, but this is a picture in recent days of the Church of the Nativity. The Church of the Nativity popped up around in the 4th century when Helena, who is the mother of Constantine, came into the Holy Land and retook them from the Muslim populations that, or from the uh, Arab populations that were there beforehand and uh, began to recover from the Roman sites, the original Christian sites. Because what had happened is that Hadrian, one of the Roman emperors, had gone around trying to destroy this little movement of Christianity by building giant Roman temples on all of their, home and their, their, their holy sites so that they couldn't take pilgrimages there and worship because it would be a pagan place of worship now. And this is a space where Hadrian had built, right on this spot, a temple to a, to a, a Roman god as a way of diminishing the early, early history. I mean, within the first century of Christianity existing, people were taking pilgrimages to this spot, believing it to be the place where Jesus was born. Underneath this complex, there is a system of caves Natural caves that had been there for a very long time. They extend back much, much earlier than the time that Jesus was probably born. And if you were to go inside of the Church of the Nativity, there's a huge line that wraps around inside that you could wait for hours and hours and hours in just to walk into this little tiny cave, which is supposed the one that is thought to be the one that Jesus was born in. We did not do that it would have been a long time. And a cave is a cave. Like, I mean, if you see one cave, you see all caves, right? And so we went into a different section where nobody was waiting in line, and we saw one of the other caves. This is a cave that actually Jerome, uh, an early bishop of the church, came and translated the scriptures into Latin for the church. And so this is a, a holy site as well, especially for the Catholic church. Um, but this is where uh, the, you would see kind of the kind of cave structure that was underneath there. Now, in the first century, so you know this, the way that a Palestinian home is built is that there's almost always two levels, if they're, if they're able to create two levels. And on the second level is where, really where everybody would live. Why would they live on the second level? Anybody know? Animals. Why? What, what would be important about the animals? Where would they put them? They'd put them on the first floor. Why? Yeah, well, there you go. Because <laughs> they can't get up the steps. <laughs> 
multiple different reasons. That's a really good, you know, I almost put a picture in here of the entrance to the Church of the Nativity, and the entrance is this tiny little hole. The door is about like this high from the ground, and you have to really stoop down to get in. And we asked the question, why is this door so small? And they said, well, because in the times of the Crusaders, when the Crusaders would come with their camels into the area, they had to make the door so small that the camel couldn't get his way into the church because camels just don't pay attention or obey any rules. And so they would just go in. So this is a way for people to get in, but to keep the camels out. So that was very astute, Bill. No, the reason why is because they want to protect their animals from thievery or from predators, right? And so they want to have a place where their most important animals for the family could be protected at night while they're not guarding them. But at the same time, it's also functional because the heat would rise from the animals and would heat the upper floor. Um, and that way that they would have kind of a little bit of a natural heating system. So down on the bottom floor, you could see there they've got pins and then they have their mangers, stone mangers in between pillars where the the animals would eat out of a trough. This is the, what Jesus was laid in. So when it says that there was no room at the inn, it was not talking about a hotel. It was not talking about the hotel. Because the word that we translate in horribly in every translation, I don't know why we do it, is actually only ever used one other time in all the scriptures, and it's also in Luke, and it's at the end of the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus tells his disciples to go and prepare the upper room. The exact same Greek term is used. And so what this is actually saying is that as Joseph and Mary went back to the home of their ancestors to be counted in the census, they were going to an ancestral home. But there was many other people who were wayward and away from their ancestral home who were coming back to their same ancestral home. Cousins, aunts, and uncles. And many of them would have been elderly or would have been uh, much more honored guests in this ancestral home. So they would have been given the positions of sleeping in the living quarters where the rest of the humans were. Probably a limited amount of space. It could have only been that they had a half a dozen visitors coming into the home, and it still would have filled up the top pretty easily. Now, inside of the, the Church of the Nazarene, or a Church of the Nativity in, in um, Bethlehem, one of the things that would happen is if there was a kind of system of caves like that, they would build the homes over the system of caves. And why would they do that, you think? Why do we, what do we use caves for very often long before we had modern day technology? Storage, storage specifically so that it would be cold, right? And so this is where it might be like a pantry where they would keep goods and other things to be preserved over a longer period of time. And there also might have been animals that they might have kept down there if they had an overflow or they might have put, they might have put in um, space that humans could stay in when they had an overflow of people visiting them. And so it makes sense that on this site where there's a system of caves that there would have been homes in the first century built over those caves to use those spaces as kind of like a basement. And that it would be make sense that if in that day there was some kind of a call for accounting, a census, that Joseph and Mary, as they came to Bethlehem, would have been forced to kind of go on the very base level, the lowest level, because they were probably the least, the youngest, the least important members of the family in terms of ancestry. And so they would have been there. But think about this. It means that Mary was surrounded by who? Loved ones. Loved ones who were probably older, 
many women who had already gone through childbirth, right? And so she had people who were experienced around her who could help her through the process of giving birth to the Messiah. But at the same time, remember that for all of them, what do they think about Mary? They think she got pregnant before marriage, right? Can you imagine the amount of judgment that it might have been going on in that little family? Oh, there's Mary. That might have been one of the reasons why they were down in the basement. So this little town, this little town of Bethlehem, that at the day of Jesus, the best guesses of scholars today is that for sure the town was far less than a thousand. They think that there might have been maybe three to four to five hundred people at most in this little town that were alive and were residing in Bethlehem at the time of Jesus' birth. And so they think that when Herod goes and kills all the male infants that are under two years old after the Magi appear to him, that how many infants did he kill? Not dozens and dozens, hundreds of, of infants. No, he probably killed somewhere between six and ten young boys. So this is a tiny, tiny town. Somewhat, even... Hard for us to imagine because tiny towns in our country, for the most part, are like thousands of people, right? And so it's hard for us. When somebody comes from a tiny town, what are they talking about? You know, some place that has like 2,500 residents or maybe even 10,000 residents. That's a tiny town in our, in our country, right? But this is just a few hundred people. Insignificant in human history, it seems like. Except for the fact that God kept coming back to it. God kept making significant things happen around this tiny little town throughout time over and over and over again. Why? Why did he pick Bethlehem for all these significant things in the history of Israel leading up to the salvation of all humankind to happen? Because it was small. Astute. Because it was small. I think there's a lesson in here for, for us. I think as we look at our own lives and we think that your or I am insignificant, there's not much that we can do. We can't make a difference. We can't change anything. I think if we look to the stories within Scripture, we see over and over God using insignificant people in insignificant times in insignificant towns to do things that turn the whole world upside down. God's telling you that you're more important than you think you are because he's placed an importance on you that outsizes who you are. God cares for you. God loves you like he loved this little town of Bethlehem. And he's doing amazing things in you in your life in the same way that he did amazing things in Bethlehem. And so as we think about this Christmas season, as we think about our lives in Jesus Christ, don't underestimate yourself. Don't think too highly of yourself. There's lots in scripture about that. But don't underestimate what God can do through you, no matter how low or insignificant or untalented or whatever you think about yourself. Don't think that God can't do something through you because of those things. God uses the insignificant, the small, the simple, the regular, the mundane, the ordinary, every single day to do amazing, miraculous things for the glory of his kingdom. As we come before him and we want to experience his peace, rest, rest in the knowledge that he loves you because he loved this little town of Bethlehem. 
that he loves you in the same way that he blessed Bethlehem to be the birthplace of his son. He's blessed you to be the dwelling place of his spirit. He's made you to be a Bethlehem, like we looked last week, being a Mary to this world. Let us remember that and let us rest in the peace of Christ, knowing that he loves us, he cares for us, and that he's working in our lives daily, no matter what we think about our significance. Amen. If you are already a Christian this, this season, recognize that in you, Christ dwells in the Holy Spirit. You are like a modern-day Bethlehem. He's been born into you, your meek, lowly heart. If you aren't a Christian, I encourage you, think and pray on accepting Christ into your heart to being the place of God's bearing of his presence onto this earth today so that you might impact others and you might touch others with the love of Christ as you go about town this Christmas season.